0: your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 10 we'll be spending most of our time around verses 33 through 45 or so I'm going to read a series of words to you and I want you to race each other to figuring out what these words are and what they mean this just, uh, just uh, don't jump up just 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 try to figure out what I'm doing when I read the following words. Voila. Abracadabra. ta Shazam. Hocus pocus. Alakazam. Open sesame. Presto Changeo," Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. So these are magic words. And humans have always believed in magic words. And the history of humans leaning into magic words is so deep and pronounced that it's one of those sort of myths that we might want to look at and say, "What is what is going on here? Why are so many people for so many centuries believing in this idea of magic words? In, in 1722, which is a period of history I'm studying right now, Daniel Defoe was saddened by the continuing superstition of the populace when faced with the threat of the plague. And he wrote, people deceived. This was in wearing charms, filters, exorcisms, amulets, and I know not what preparations to fortify the body with them against the plague as if the plague was a kind of possession of an evil spirit so that it might be kept off with crossings and signs of the Zodiac papers tied up with so many knots and certain words or figures written on them, as particularly the word abracadabra formed in a triangle or a pyramid. Plague, 1722, which is really not that long ago, uh, especially for someone who deals in thousands of years for a living. uh, We haven't changed that much since 1722, have we, really? Really? 1722, people are walking around with magic words hung around their neck, hoping to ward off a plague. Do we still, as a culture, believe in magic words? Are we still a magic word-driven culture? Well, here's a couple words you'll hear that seem to have greater power and force than they could possibly contain in their own right. How about the word victim? that seems to be a culturally magic word. How about the word science? Are we trying to import more meaning, more hope, more power in this word than it could possibly really contain? So does the world still believe in magic words? In C.S. Lewis's Tape Letters, he describes how demonic forces will use the word democracy as a kind of magic word that causes people to stop thinking and simply apply the word democracy here or there. And so there have always been magic words. Jesus contended with the Pharisees who would utter the word Corban to exempt themselves from honoring their parents with their wealth. The the idea of magic words is long established, and it's still a part of the secular, unregenerate culture. But here's the question. Do we, as a people, as the people of God, believe in magic words because if there's anyone who should it's us because we have been told by god himself that the word of god is living and active and and the word of god is the breath of god so we have a doctrine of scripture that says that all of those myths all of those abracadabras are false counterfeits pointing to in c s Lewis language the one true myth, which is that there really are special words, and those special words were uttered by God, and we have those words in the book of holy scripture. so do we as a people believe in these magic words? do we believe in the power of these words? Well, I want to layer another another i want to go deep a bit deeper and say. But even within the scriptures themselves, there are a series of propositions, a series of ideas. Now, I'm not saying that, you, that there are certain words to utter, per se. But I'm saying that there are a series of propositions or ideas that the Bible teaches us have special power. And those ideas are referred to by theologians as the kerygma. This is the original message of the apostles. Theologians sometimes refer to this as primitive preaching. The original message of the apostles. And you can go through the book of Acts and see that five times Peter preaches a kerygma message. A message of primitive gospel meaning. And Paul preaches them three times. And when you look at these sermons, you see in each time... The gospel, this kerygma message, this charismatic message contains actual power. God actually has promised to use a certain set of ideas, a certain set of, uh, not words exactly, but concepts. God has promised that there are indeed key propositions that do have unusual power in them. This is the true myth behind all of the fake myth surrounding words like abracadabra, and so forth. God really has given us words that affect change. And those words are what theologians refer to as the kerygma, the, the the gospel handed down once and for all. In our text in Acts chapter 10, we see the kerygma presented and proclaimed by Peter from verses 33 through 43. That's what I just read. It contains the basic facts of the gospel story. And then in verse 44, we see that while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Now, what I want to suggest is is that we should not look at verse 44 as a, well, that's cool that that happened kind of thing. But rather, we should look at verse 44 as that's what happens. That's what happens when these words are proclaimed. That's not all that happens. But let's just say at this state that, Something always happens when these words are proclaimed. So we can go through these instances in the book of Acts and see time and time again, when this collection of ideas is presented, something happens. There's something to these ideas that God has chosen to bind himself to to affect change in the world by affecting change in individual human hearts. The first time we see this happen is in Acts 2, 37, we at the end of Peter's message, it says in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, this kerygma, this primitive gospel message, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? We see that power again after Peter's use of this set of arguments or propositions in chapter four. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. In chapter 13, we see another uh, proclamation of this kerygma and Paul this time is proclaiming and it says in verse 42 of Acts chapter 13, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after meeting uh, the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged the, them to continue in the grace of God. Now, what I would like for us to be able to do is when we read Acts ten forty-four, not say, well, that's cool that happened, but to say, yeah, that's what happens. Something i 'd like for us to be able to say, not every proclamation of the Kerygma leads to conversion, but every proclamation of these essential facts, these essential propositions, lead to some response that glorifies God. One response being conversion, another response being rebellion. So these words not only provoked belief in some, but they provoked rebellion in others. In Acts 17, at the end of Paul's charismatic message, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. Acts 4, it says at the beginning, I already read this, Acts 4, 1 through 3, let's say, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the idea is is that there are magic words. The, The gospel is this set of key, especially potent words, which are to those who are being saved, life, and to those who are perishing, death. There is a transformative thing that takes place when these propositions are presented. And I think that's pretty revolutionary. I just think, Truthfully, I think one of the main difficulties is simply one of the main difficulties of Christianity is, is that so much of it seems too good to be true. Uh, that's that's especially true of God's unmerited favor and love imputed upon us through Jesus Christ, right? Like, like there there are the, many of the the hardest things about being a Christian are believing the good things that are as good as they really are. And when I would come, as I come to you this morning and I say, guys, there really are key phrases, key messages, which if you chose to devote your life to proclaiming these in the company of your family, in the company of your coworkers, to your neighbors, to your fellow church members, if you devoted your life to saying these things, your life would be especially full of accomplishment because you would be wielding a sword which does indeed transform. And yeah, it, it does sound too good to be true. It, it sounds like the kind of thing I used to read in the back of, a ma- of my magazines when I was a kid. I was, I was reacquainted with like, my, my moment in life when I read comic books, Mad Magazine, and Boy's Life. And at the back of all of those magazines, you would have these, these, these highly... This is the original Spam, by the way. It's, it was, uh, so, so now Spam is for like erectile dysfunction and hair loss. So that they're talking to me, you know, than they were talking to me back then. You know, they're like, they're like, okay, now he's old. Let's but but when I was younger, I just wanted to be able to add fifty pounds of muscle and have x-ray vision, and they knew that too. So you read these promises, and you're like, oh yeah, okay, whatever. You know, it's too good to be true. But friends, let's not import what might be well earned cynicism as we course through this fallen world. Let's not import that cynicism upon the Lord of glory. Who is every bit what he says he is, and more. So this idea that there really may be a message that God has handed us, which wields special power, well, that's—I don't think it's too good to be true. I think that's actually right. I think one way to talk about it is is that God cares so much for the glory of Jesus, He has not left the accomplishment of that glory up to question. He's given us a script. This is, this is a moment where you are, uh, are, are speaking, let's suppose that you're speaking in front of a million people on TV. Is this the time to wing it? Probably not. This is probably not the time to wing it, right? That's a lot of people. So you come prepared. And it's as if God says, on this matter of glorifying my son Jesus in all the world, of transforming the world by calling those into life who are destined to life, by calling those to the death who are destined to death, I will not leave it up to chance. I will give my people a script. I will give my people a sacred, repeatable, reliable script that they can use in their interactions with each other and with the world. And that appears to be what the kerygma is, this set of propositions that contain unusual power. Now, before I get into that a little bit further and explain that and and, and define it, if this is true, I I just want to say, like, if this is true, then we can draw a couple of initial conclusions. And one of them would be, even perfect speech offends. Right? So if, so if we're deciding that there's this, this, this set of propositions that are especially blessed by God, associated with power, and so on and so forth, this is the closest thing we would ever get to perfect speech. And we see time and time again in Scripture that even perfect speech offends so the value of our speech must not be ultimately measured by its reception, but rather by its reflection of these truths we see in God's word. So even perfect speech offends. It's a good thing to remember. And then, just secondly, it just reminds us that you know we're taught in Scripture that there is power in all words. But that there are, I think we're taught this, that there are more power in more words. And there are more, there, there's more power in some words than others. There's power in all words. There's more power in some words than others. And, and that should tell me, well, gosh, if I really want to be helpful in the world and accomplishing God's purposes, then this script matters to me a great deal. This should be something I should know. This should be something I should work into my conversations with all people. So it really is, the proposition here is is that God has actually given us a recipe. A recipe of words. And if we follow the recipe, we will see people brought to life from death. And we will see those destined to death react accordingly. There's a, a theologian summarized this whole idea pretty well. And he just said, according to charismatic theologians, When the content of this primitive message is preached today, i.e. Jesus' death and resurrection, it is understood that God calls upon hearers to believe in God's act in Christ so that the hearers recognize their judgment of sin and receive grace in the present. In other words, this proclaimed word is an existential encounter with Jesus where the saving event of God, as described in the historical content of the Kerygma, reoccurs in the proclaiming act of the present. So the idea is is that when these words are proclaimed, God meets these words with power and things happen. Now, I want to say this. This is important. In the context of Acts 10, Peter is sharing these words with an unbeliever named Cornelius. But I want to remind you that we as a church are self-identified as gospel-centered. And if that word means anything anymore, what we mean by that is, is that the same message has power both to save those who are lost and sanctify those who are saved. What we mean by gospel-centered, if it's of any usefulness at all, it's this. This same gospel, this same Primitive gospel kerygma has power for everybody in this room, regardless of their status in Christ. We believe that this message has power to save those who are lost and also power to keep and transform those who are saved. Right. So we believe that this message has utility, prime utility in all contexts, whether that be in your marriage or in your small group, or in your discussions with a friend at work who doesn't believe in Jesus. That's, that's one of the things we need to be clear about, is, is that this is power for all people. Now, let's get into the basic ingredients of the recipe. Let's understand, well, what is this, what is this key collection of ideas that show consistently throughout the book of Acts and elsewhere to be the... Um, The apostle's right hand, if we're talking from a boxing metaphor, this is the main weapon, right? What are the key ingredients of this message? Well, back in the 1930s, there was a a revolt against a bunch of liberal, theologically liberal heresies which had crept in to formal theology via rationalism and Darwinianism. And one of the faithful theologians um, to kind of push back against all of that nonsensory was a guy named Dodd. And Dodd decided he wanted to go out and try to find the original recipe, if you will. He wanted to make sure that everybody in a formal theological circles in the Bible-believing side understood the original recipe, the original gospel proclaimed by the apostles themselves. And so he set about studying this, and he came up with seven essential ingredients to this message, which we are claiming has unusual power. And I think it's important for you to know these. The first one is, the prophecies are fulfilled, and the new age is inaugurated by the coming of Christ. The second one, he was born of the seed of David. The third, he died according to the scriptures to deliver us out of the present evil age. Fourth, he was buried. Fifth, he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. Sixth, he is exalted at the right hand of God as the son of God and Lord of the quick and the dead. And seven, he will come again as judge and savior of men. So that was Dodd's rediscovery, if you will, of the seven original essentials to the gospel. Now, let me tell you like one practical kind of way this would show up. When you think about having a good conversation, a successful conversation with an unbeliever, you might ask, like, what, how much of the gospel is enough to share? What do I need to share? Because I could talk about a lot of things. What do I need to make sure I cover? And I really like Acts 10.44 for that reason, because it shows us that while Peter was saying these things, uh, he believed, which which means whatever Peter had shared was enough. Uh, whatever Peter had shared was enough in that moment for Cornelius and his household to place their faith in Jesus. So I think it's good to look at these. I, I, I'll walk you through these seven uh, in in our text, in, in Acts 10, 33 through 43. We'll see whether Peter covers these or not, okay? Uh, the first one, the prophecies are fulfilled and the new age is inaugurated by the coming of Christ. Yeah, that's covered. Verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Uh, The second proposition, he was born of the seed of David. Nope, Peter does not cover that in this sermon. Number three, number four, number five, and read all those together. He died according to the scriptures to deliver us out of this present evil age. He was buried. He rose on the third day according to the scriptures. Verse 39 uh, through through, uh, 40, we see all three of those uh, checked off. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country, the Jews, and in Jerusalem. They put him to death, uh, hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Uh, numbers 6 through 7, he is exalted at the right hand of God as the Son of God, the Lord of quick and dead. He will come again as judge and savior of men. Yes, Peter covers that in verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So, Peter's sermon basically fits Dodd's list with the exception of the reference to David, which might make sense considering Peter was talking to a Gentile and maybe David didn't bear as much weight for even this devoutly half-Jewish Gentile. A point being, when you go through Peter's sermons and you go through Paul's sermons, these are the basic ingredients, more or less, that show up And this is, friends, this is the message that turned the world upside down. Again, like if anybody in the world should believe in magic words, (laughs) it should be us. Now, I want to differentiate and say, magic words, yes, mostly magic ideas. Meaning, in each one of these eight sermons of Kerygma we see in the book of Acts, these truths are put in different words, in different ways, and in different orders. But it is these ideas which God seems to have committed to bless in unusual ways to bring people out of death and into life. Now you're thinking, well, that's great. Do I write this on like a, like? do I make a note on my phone? And then like when I'm talking to someone, like do you guys use uh, reminders on your phone? I I use reminders on my iPhone. It's like I'll just have like the the, the list and I'm talking to someone. It's like, did I cover Jesus died? Check. Did I cover, you know? Like, what utility, what what actual utility is this knowledge in your conversations? Well, the title of the message is charismatic conversations. And the idea is, is that over time, the more you think about this material, the more you consider these things, the more they will wear their way into your conversations. You know, um, years ago, you know, you would always know among my group of friends who had, like, word of the day toilet paper, because, like, out of nowhere, uh, out of nowhere, like, one of my friends' vocabulary would just increase out of nowhere, and they're starting to use words that they never used before. I'm like, what's going on here? Uh, you got that word of that was a thing, by the way, back in the day, word of the day toilet paper. Uh, uh, two birds, one stone. I'm all about it. uh, you would always know, because like, oh, this guy's like using five dollars words, and he doesn't usually use five dollars words. Um, the idea is, is that whatever is this is the, this is the basic rule of speech that the Bible communicates, and that is, whatever is deepest and truest in your heart will come out of your mouth. Which it's rough, because I think, I think that maybe what's deepest is true of our our hearts is a whole lot of nothing. I ran this experiment where I, I, I th- said I'm going to go through the New Testament mentally and start crossing out everything that has something to do with Jesus. And I, I kind of did in my brain. I didn't do it. You know, I didn't cross out in my Bible. And I, man, I got like I, I basically crossed out all of the New Testament, right? And then I decided, well, I'm going to cross out everything in the Old Testament that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. And here you need to have a little bit more theological insight and faith. But Jesus says, all Scripture, the the Old Testament testifies about me. So then I cross out everything in the Old Testament. And here's what I ask myself. One day, all of my words are going to be judged by God. If he crossed out everything that didn't have anything to do with Jesus and only left the stuff that did have something to do with Jesus, how many (laughs) words would be left? Is the deepest, truest thing in my heart these glorious truths, because if they are, they will come out. They will come out in various forms. And I want to make one more point, because this is key. When God is talking about Jesus, he does not always name Jesus. God has, God has explicit and implicit ways of talking about Jesus. This does not mean in order to be a successful uh, godly converser, you need to use the word Jesus every six minutes. That That could be antithetical to the way that god wants to show jesus but god speaks jesus that's what he speaks that's what the word is and so the more we dive into this idea of oh there really is a set of things that if i use these things in my conversations with my believing friends my unbelieving friends things will happen then we say okay let's see how we can make this more portable because seven points it ain't that portable so that's what I did. I looked through this, and I looked through Peter's conversation in 1033 forty three. I was like, how can I make this as portable as possible? And I came up with three points. And, and this is all in response, by the way. Last week, we talked about receiving the Word of God and said that the thing you do after you receive the Word of God is you transmit it. So all we're doing today is answering the question, how do I be a good transmitter? And the answer is, is transmit the, the powerful message. Transmit the powerful message. And this message, the kerygma, can be summarized, I think, into three basic containers that are far more wieldy and practical than seven. And those three would simply be Jesus, judgment, and joy. Jesus, judgment, and joy. When I talk about Jesus, I mean covering a number of the points mentioned in Dodd's kerygmatic outline. That is to talk about the life of Jesus. And the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, and that's exactly what we see Paul do or Peter do. It's it's the majority of this sermon has to do with the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So one of the things we should be doing is we should just be talking about Jesus more. You know, I was thinking about those old steam-driven, uh, coal-driven steam locomotives. And I was thinking about how that, that job of shoveling coal into the engine so that the train keeps moving is, is a really interesting job because a lot depends on this guy. But he might be the lowest knowledge person involved in the process. Meaning, he is not a geologist. He does not understand the uh, the geological principles of anthracite coal. Neither is he an engineer. He didn't engineer the boiler or the steam system. He knows the least about those things. All he knows is that when I do this, the train keeps moving. And friends, like, man, if we could just be a church of people. He said, when I do this, the train keeps moving. I don't understand all of the deepest principles involved. But when I make much of Jesus with my mouth, the train keeps moving. The relationships moving in the right direction, people who are destined to life are headed to life, and people who are not are, are, are having their expected outcomes at all as well. And man, it, it's not necessarily about being super knowledgeable, and I really feel like this man, this metaphor of this man with the shovel, is sort of takes all of our excuses away for not being more intentional about just telling those inside and outside the church about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus like yeah you don't understand a lot that's that's great neither do i but what i do understand and what i can see what's observable true observable in scripture observable in life is when i shovel this into that we keep going that way and when i stop we stop and men called to lead your households and called to lead your wives and likeness into greater likeness of christ yeah you know don't worry about the things you don't understand. Just talk about Jesus as much as you can. You know, we we are many of you parents of young children put my wife and I to shame in your intentionality. I mean, there was no New City Catechism when we were raising our kids. We didn't even have like cool strollers back then. You know, like. Um, but you know, when you just kind of when you just kind of love Jesus. It just comes out it comes out when you're driving it comes out when when the cookies get burned uh it comes out it comes out when when jesus is your thing it just kind of keeps coming out and and all of the intentionality that perhaps we lacked i think was was god blessed uh, a sense of this is just kind of we actually believe this stuff and it it, and and we talk about it and we see a tree and we, we say that's a cool tree and it's like god really did a good job there and Just entirely random things where we were shoveling coal we didn't even know that's what we were doing. This this coal shoveling metaphor for me when it comes to having these kinds of conversations removes a lot of potential excuses and just says, you know, you know, you know there's power in Jesus. You know there is. You've seen it. Shovel coal. (laughs) Now, Uh, There's one area that is almost entirely lacking from, from our conversations about Jesus, and that is judgment. But if you will look at every charismatic message, you would have to say that this is a key component. And in fact, that all of the other stuff about forgiveness and repentance makes no sense when you abandon this. Probably the most absent theme from our gospel speaking has to do with Jesus being at the end of the railroad tracks, with the fact that every human being is on a journey they cannot veer from, from this moment until their death, and at the end of the line is Jesus Christ who will judge all men, all women. And he will judge them by his standard of righteousness. And friends, if you don't share this, you're not sharing the gospel. This is what our current gospel conversations, both within and without the church, lack. We have to be telling each other and all people that we will soon die. And when we die, we will give an accounting for our lives before the righteous judge, Jesus Christ. And We often fail to include this because we think we're being compassionate. But I want to assure you that that compassion is actually conceit. Because you think you know better than the god of the universe who handed the script to you this is part of god's message this is part of god's gospel message if you trust him you will include it in your gospel conversations and if you fail to include it intentionally consistently in your gospel conversations it will reveal a lack of trust in him. So how do we work this charismatic script into our conversations, both within the church and without the church? Well, we talk about Jesus as much as we can, both implicitly and explicitly, and we talk about judgment. We do what, we do what we're commanded to do. Look at verse 42 of chapter 10. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And you say, well, that just seems like like so far out there when it comes to the average conversation I have with someone. I just want to invite you to look at Paul's message to the, to the Mars Hill in Acts 17. Because he starts from, God made you live where you live. He's given you rain, And ends with, and he's going to judge you through this man named Jesus Christ who he raised from the dead. This is an essential, even when we think it is in left field, this is an essential part of the message. And you say, well, I just don't know how that could be helpful. But remember... As much as it may be discomfortable discom- in some respects, remember, what we're claiming here is we're claiming a magic words-like effect. We're claiming power in a particular message that is supernatural. So, so yes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you that this seems exceedingly countercultural. This seems like, it, well, this just isn't going to work. This isn't going to be helpful. Guys, I, I think we just have to decide, like, will we shovel the coal or not? Do we trust God's word, of which this is clearly a key ingredient, or do we not? I'll just tell you point blank, like, I will be tempted this week to not include this piece of the gospel in a conversation. And when I am tempted to do that, it will be a choice. It will be an Eve-like choice between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of me. That's rough. So Jesus, judgment, and joy. Of course, this is key as well, and we're happy to share this, I think, most of the time, but it doesn't make any sense unless we discuss judgment. The good news of Jesus, that there is forgiveness of sins. Verse 43 of our text, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Why would that be good news if we had not talked about the glorious one Jesus, and if we had not talked about his righteous judgment, why would forgiveness of sins make any difference at all if we were not convinced, if we had not at least informed others that you are on a train, it is headed in one direction, you cannot get off the tracks, you are just going to wind up one day in a coffin, and then you will face God, and God has appointed Jesus Christ to be the judge of the living and the dead. Why would I be glad I was forgiven if judgment wasn't already covered? So that's what I would do to summarize this original message, which seems to have unusual power. I would say there are three ingredients. Let's talk about Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Let's talk about the judgment of Christ and understanding that all of us will one day stand before him and give an account. And let's talk about the joy that we can have by placing our faith in him knowing that that day of judgment, it's still coming, but it will be for us a day of great pardon, a day of great grace, a day of great joy, because blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. I want to conclude by asking something that I think would just be helpful to remind yourselves of. One of the reasons, I suppose, we don't share these things especially together with each other, is because there has been built in, I think this is a fairly recent thing, a cultural value uh, that in which it says that politeness is not telling people something they already know. It is impolite to tell people something they already know. Now, as I'm getting older, I am really like feel like I'm doing this a lot. <laughs> like I feel like I have to interrupt my conversations and say, stop me if I've already told you this. And what's going on in my mind at this time is some kind of cultural wiring that has that has said repetition is bad. Repetition is condescending. Saying the same thing over again is, is if I tell you something you already know, I'm somehow insulting you. Um, it's funny, you know, when my kids are little, their first act of rebellion is no, N-O. But when they become teenagers, the the rebellion. It's interesting because then they say, "What do they say then?" I know. And and I know is basically them reverting to toddlerhood, but saying I, know <laughs> not not. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's like I know. That just means like you have insulted me. You have told me something I already know. Somehow, and I think this is real. I think we have lost. I don't think this is a very old thing. We have, we have allowed this cultural value to enter in which we say, if I tell you something you already know, I'm offending you. And I would just say that is not the way that God speaks to us. That is not the way God speaks to us, and it's not the way we should speak to each other. It should be no trouble, as Peter says in his epistle, it should be no trouble for you to remind someone that Jesus died who knows that Jesus died. And it should be no trouble for them to hear it it should be beneficial to them to hear it. So as I've walked through Acts 10, and this is our last Acts 10 sermon, yay, I've thought, I've thought, how can we start having these, of course I want us to have these experiences outside the church, but I certainly believe that, the, that step one is to have these dynamic, transformative conversations within the church. And that's what we believe as a gospel Center church, that the gospel is just as good for us today as it was for the day we were raised to newness of life. And i say, why aren't we doing that more often? i say, well, we could just be a lack of faith, trying to be more than a coal shoveler. That's possibility one. I'm certainly guilty of that. Possibility two is we've come to believe that for me to tell you something you already know is somehow a slight or insult. And we have to understand that is a imported cultural value. That is not what we receive from the Lord. That is not the way we're taught by God to speak to one another. We're taught by God to speak to one another in repetition. And I thought, okay, well, what's the practical application of all this? How do we like, work this into our lives? And I would just say, here's, here's a few ideas. Number one, community group seems essential to me in this respect. There's got to be a safe place where this sort of repetition is practiced where you say to someone, you know, Jesus died. and Well, you know, Jesus rose again. You say that to someone whom you said it to 20 times before, and that person says, thank you. Thank you. So, so I would say that a practical application of this is pointing us toward this need to be in smaller groups of people in which we are having and practicing these charismatic, uh, these charismatic conversations. And I want to point you to one final means of grace, and that would be the Apostles' Creed. So if this whole idea of power in a confined set of propositions is true, then having something that's written that has all of these in it is helpful. And there's a reason why churches... Now, if we started reading the Apostles' Creed over and over again every week, I believe that there would be a temptation to say you know, we're being formal, we're being formalistic. There would be a, a, a reaction against this kind of repetition. But faithful saints who lived had it way harder than us, who were, who were actually probably smarter than us, and who maybe knew Jesus better than us, exhausted the, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, these, these contained sets of, of writings, these contained pieces of writing, they exhausted them. They wrung them out week after week after week. So here's what I'd like to encourage you to do. When you do your time in God's Word, read what you're going to read, but have some repetition as well. I have um, about 15 things I read that are the same things every morning. And uh, and they're the same verses. That One of them is the Lord's Prayer. There's a couple poems in there. There's a couple of things and I just read them every single, every single day. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to add the Apostles' Creed to my list of things. Now, you might just have one or two things like that. But yes, read what you're going to read, but then close that time with the Lord with a little bit of repetition. citing the Reading the Apostles' Creed, reading the Lord's Prayer. Get this kerygma deep inside your heart and see what God does with it from there. I actually think we have a slide for this so we can end our sermon by reading this out loud together if that slide is working. There we go. So let's read this together and then I'll pray and conclude. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Let me pray. Lord God, may You give us the grace to be mere coal shovelers. Continually, Lord, Sharing your word, in particular your gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. May we, God, do this in our conversations in our home, in our conversations in our church, and in our conversations in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.